I want to talk to you this morning about kingdom values or kingdom perspectives. We're in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to begin the second half of Matthew 6, but I want to go back and revisit real quickly the first half of Matthew 6. And in that passage, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points out, or he addresses a, a particular subject that is egregious in his thoughts, in his, in his mind. Can you think of what the subject is that he addresses? Well, let me give you a hint. When you talk to people about coming to church or and such, and, they, and they're, they're somewhat reluctant or resistant, what, what do people typically say? They don't want to be with the hypocrites. Only the hypocrites go to church, right? So Jesus, in the first half of chapter 6 of Matthew's gospel, is addressing the religious hypocrisy, especially that of the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. He calls them outright hypocrites. And if you go later on in the Matthew's gospel, and he, he pronounces what's called the seven woes on them. Woe to you, hypocrites. And so Jesus tells his disciples, and by extension he tells us, don't be like those hypocrites. Don't just be religious. Now lots and lots of people sitting in churches today are religious. Jesus says an interesting thing later on. He says, narrow is the way, and those who find it broad is the way to destruction. How many are familiar with that passage? There's a constant refrain throughout the New Testament to make sure that you're checking yourself out to make sure you're of the faith, that you're persevering in the faith. The emphasis is such that this is the most important thing you and I could ever do, to make sure that I am a real believer. I'm not just a hypocrite. I'm not just playing church. I'm not just going through the motions. There are many, many people today who will do religious work and a religious activity, but they're doing it not because they're moved of God and they're, and they're thankful to God. They're doing it because they're still trying to earn his favor. They're still trying to prove themselves. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. You've heard that. Maybe even said it at some point. Trying to justify yourself. That's simply religious hypocrisy. Jesus points out three, three dynamics that the religious leaders in Israel embraced. And they were very proud of how they did it. And these are, are spiritual dynamics, spiritual disciplines, if you will, that really are essential to your life. Giving. Should God's people be a giving people? Should we share with those who are in need? prayer. Should God's people be a praying people? How about fasting? 
That's a, that's a lost discipline. A lot of people are praying. Some people are giving. Not a lot are fasting. But these were hallmark disciplines that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, loved to promote, and they loved to stand on the street corners and let people know. Jesus says, only your heavenly Father should know. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Go into your prayer closet where only your Father hears. He says, when you fast, wash your face. Don't look all somber. What's the matter today? Oh, I'm fasting. <laughs> oh, how spiritual. And that's exactly what the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would put on display their spirituality so that everybody could see it. And everybody could say, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. And Jesus says, don't be like them. Don't be like them. The challenge is no different today than it was then, 2,000 years ago. The challenge today, don't be a religious hypocrite. Don't be a religious hypocrite. Jesus is going to shift gears. And in contrast to the, to the hypocrisy that he points out, and he tells us to avoid, in the second half of chapter 2, he's going to describe how our lives ought to be lived. Our lives ought to be lived being oriented around kingdom values, kingdom perspectives. Later on, toward the end of chapter 6, he'll say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It becomes a matter of priority rather than just trying to appear spiritual or appear religious. Now, it's a challenge for every one of us because we all, we all want to be noticed in some fashion, in some measure. You can say, well, not me. Oh, shut up. Yes, you do too. <laughs> and so we do things to gain attention. It's not our favorite thing to be ignored. Would you agree? And so we have to be really careful because, because we're, we're just degrees away from religious hypocrisy, every single one of us. There are no one of us that doesn't do something great and, and it'd be nice to be commended. I mean, I, I appreciate Colleen's kind words to me this morning. And it was great to hear those. But at the same time, just be careful. Am I making sense? We not only reject categorically religious hypocrisy, but more positively, we get it. We get it that all of life is to be lived and all of our attitudes are to be formed according to God's perspectives. We call that simply having a biblical worldview. What is it that has fashioned your view of the world? 
What is it that's fashioned your view of your life? What you're called to, what you, what you participate in? Is it the Bible? Is it the fact that you read your Bible voraciously because you want to know what he says? You want to know what his will is. You love his word. You don't read it just as a religious activity. Oh, I have my, I have my quiet time this morning. Well, good for you. People brag about that. I have my quiet time. I don't care. What did God say to you? What are you carrying with you throughout the day that he spoke to you when you had your quiet time? When I ask that question, most people say, well, uh, I, I, don't, I don't remember. What did you read? Um, I read the Daily Bible, the reading for today. What did it say? Don't be a religious hypocrite. You read your Bible because you want to know how he thinks, right, Chad? You want to know what he has to say to you for today. He has a word for you today. The Bible, God's truth, God's word, God's principles, God's perspective informs our lives I remember when I became a Christian, a whole new world opened up to me. whole new world. And I thought, my gosh, how long has this been around? I thought I was a good person. I knew I did some bad stuff. I wasn't a nice person in some areas. But I believed that I did good things too. And I hoped that I did more good things than bad things. And after all, my hope was really that God grades on the curve. I found out he doesn't. But when I became a Christian, a whole new life opened up to me. A whole new way of looking at life. And I just was so excited. It was so refreshing. It was indeed what the Bible says, a new life. A new life with new perspectives, a whole new value system. Let's walk in a brand new direction. Now Jesus is going to identify for us two general but all-encompassing kingdom perspectives. And we're going to spend the next three weeks diving down in and parsing these perspectives. We're going to, this is kind of this morning is going to be kind of like introduction. The first perspective is an unswerving loyalty to kingdom values. Say that with me. Unswerving loyalty to kingdom values. The second perspective that he's going to share with us is an uncompromised trust in him. Now let's begin by looking at this matter of loyalty to his kingdom values. And he's going to use three metaphors. 
in this section. He's going to use the metaphor of treasure, light, and slavery. And using these three metaphors, he's calling for, when you read them and you understand them, we're going to parse them next time, he's calling for undivided commitment, undivided loyalty, no part-time disciple, no half-time disciple, no disciple with one foot in the world, one foot in his or her will, and one foot in the kingdom. Either you're all in or you're not. It's that way. And when we examine those metaphors, you'll see it. He talks about treasure in one of two places, not in both. Treasure's where? It's either in heaven or it's here. He talks about light. Either your body's going to be full of light or full of darkness. You're going to be a slave to money or you're going to be a slave to him, to righteousness. It's not complicated. You say, well, yeah, but but it's so hard. It's only hard when you remain double-minded. It's only hard when you're not surrendered. It's only hard when you don't give up and say, I give, I'm yours, take me, all of me. If you are a Christian, you have available to you the very power of the living God the very power of the living God who raised Jesus from the dead. I had a conversation with a man last night at the close of the service. We gave an invitation, and he came down, and I asked him, I said, what, what are you coming down here for? Why did you come down? Why did you raise your hand? He says, I, he says, he says, I, I, I just can't get out of my own way, and I'm, I, I don't know how to do this. And, and so... I just said to him, it's, it's, it's fairly straightforward and simple. You surrender to Jesus. You say, I give. I believe in you. I trust you. All of us do that at some point in our relationships, don't we? At some point, you say to this person, okay, I'm in. I trust you. Let's go. We understand that dynamic. We do it all the time in in this temporal existence. It's the same thing with making a decision with him. Okay, I trust you. I'm going with you. I said, when you make that decision and you do that, he comes in and lives in you and he empowers you. He changes you. And you live a brand new life. Is that not glorious? And guess what? It's a free gift. He wants to come in. He wants to do these things for us. And how we fight him. How we fight him. No part-time disciples. Now, these metaphors, he starts out, what's the first metaphor he starts using? Treasure. 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 You know why he starts there? It's not just random. He starts with it because our attitude towards money is often the very pulse of the heart of our discipleship. Is money an important subject? Is money an important issue? How many, how many like having money? Let me try that again. 
How many like having money? Some of you are still liars. <laughs> Let me put it this way. Let me rephrase. How many wish they had more money? How many find it hard to keep the money? Is money really an important issue for us? Yes, it is. This is why he starts with treasure instead of starting with light or starting with slavery. He starts with money because he knows where we live. Are we as human beings naturally things-oriented? I think so. Is it easy for us to be wrapped up in the seeking and the acquiring and the enjoying and the protecting of our material possessions? Have you ever said this? That's mine. You forgot your sandbox manners, right? Share with Johnny. <laughs> no, 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 that's mine. Have you ever noticed that the more stuff we accumulate, the more insurance you have to have? I submit to you that in our, our culture today, we, we live in an exceedingly materialistic culture. Every place you look, I mean the advertising, everything, you've got to have this, you've got to have that. They tell you you're not significant unless you have the new thing or that or whatever it is. But you know what? It was no different in the first century. It was no different in Jesus' day. And especially with respect to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They too were preoccupied with stuff. If we could just stand back for a second and look at our puny little lives and watch ourselves, we'd be so ashamed. You ever see these hidden camera things where the parents are in a, in a, in a room and their kids, you know, they've told their kids, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. So the, they do these things that, like on the TV news shows. They put the parents in a, in a room where the kids don't see them and they film the kids. And the parents are horrified at what the kids do. <laughs> Imagine you're in a room like that watching yourself. You go, how embarrassing. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were very materialistic. They were very greedy. They were very manipulative. In fact, Luke says in his gospel, this interesting comment, we read about the Pharisees who loved money. Who loved money. Now, back up a second. If we don't have a right view of ourselves, now where do I get a right view of myself? From my therapist. From my neighbor. From my own imagination. Where do I get a right view of myself? From God's word. This is part of the reason why you want to make sure you're reading this all the time. If I don't have a right view of myself, if I don't have a right view of my relationship to the world, if I don't have a right view of the Word of God, it's only inevitable that I won't have a right view of material things. 
You follow my logic? Does that make sense? Let me say it this way. False doctrine always leads to false standards and false behavior and false values. If I don't know the truth and I don't have the truth, I'm all over the map. My value system is going to be a relative value system. In other words, it's, it's, going, to, it's going to be constantly subject to change. This is what's going on today in our world. Everything's relative. There's no absolutes. There's no standard. There's no right doctrine for people. And that inevitably leads to hypocritical religion. And hypocritical religion always, always is accompanied by greed and immorality. Always. A classic example of this you find in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 2. There was a high priest by the name of Eli, and he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were also priests. They took advantage of their father's position as high priest. They took advantage of their position as priests. And when you read the account in 1 Samuel chapter 2, they're characterized as wicked men who had no regard for the Lord. They were, all, they were just a law unto themselves. And in that particular passage, it's, they're identified as taking more than their prescribed share of the sacrificial meat for themselves. And not only that, they were committing adultery with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Greed, immorality. Greed, immorality. If you have no right doctrine, if you have no standards, if you don't have godly values and your life is oriented towards those, you're going to be subject to that. Annas and Caiaphas, they were the high priests in Jesus' day. Annas and Caiaphas became extremely wealthy. Do you know how they amassed their wealth? Well, they're the high priests. They have access to the temple. They're responsible for all the concessions, all the money-making concessions in the temple courts. They had a captive audience. When the Jews came up to Jerusalem for all the feast days, guess who sold them all the sacrificial animals? In Matthew's gospel and John's gospel, we hear twice that Jesus did something. What did he do? He went in there and threw them all out. He said, you made my father's house a, a den of thieves. But it should be a house of prayer. And interestingly, most of those um, concessions were set up in what's known as the court of the Gentiles. So there was actually a court in the temple so that the Gentiles could come and worship the God of Israel. But now all these concessions were set up there, and that's where Jesus goes and throws them all out. God expected not only Jews, but also Gentiles to come worship him. 
Throughout the history of the church, there's always been religious charlatans. People who come along and abuse the ministry to gain wealth and also inevitably, sadly, to engage their sexual lusts. And often, oftentimes, these people would use their, their, their quote-unquote success, they'd use their uh, material prosperity as imagined evidence of God's blessing. I submit to you, that is not God blessing. That is not God blessing. They would completely pervert what God's word says. There's an interesting passage, Deuteronomy chapter 28. I think every Christian should read it at least once a week. It's a promise of blessing and cursing. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the first three verses, basically God says this. If you obey me fully, I think that's a key word, fully. If you obey me fully, I will bless you. I'll bless your socks off, if I may paraphrase. If you don't obey me fully, I will curse you. I suggest to you, and I'm submitting to you, that that is akin to what I'm talking to you about this morning in terms of what? Wholehearted devotion, unswerving loyalty to his standards, to his will. He's God. Let's do it his way. I'm forever telling couples, young couples especially, and in our culture, you know, everybody's living together, sleeping together. It just goes with the show. And so I tell them, I said, look, do you want God to bless this relationship? Do you want God's best blessing on your marriage? Yes. Then do it his way. Do it his way. Don't take shortcuts. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in him with your whole heart. I talked to couples who are involved in really dysfunctional, hard case, problematic marriages. And I say, do you want God to bless this? Sometimes they don't. Sometimes, truth be known, they want out. That's even a greater tragedy. I say, do it God's way. Just read his book, do it his way. He says, if you obey me fully, I will bless you. The blessing doesn't come from disobedience. The blessing doesn't come from greed. The blessing doesn't come from uh, doing evil. Curses come from that. Man, if your life is not working and you're going and you're banging your head up against a wall, I would suggest that you turn to Jesus and say, okay, I give, I'm going to do it your way. My way is not working. Now, some of you may not yet quite be there, and you're still going to beat your head up against a wall thinking you're going to make it happen. I'll be here next week. Come on back. To claim God's approval simply on the basis of having accumulated some measure of wealth or some measure of health or other such thing is to pervert his word and to take his name in vain. 
And God says, I will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses my name. We're talking about God. We should fear God. Would you agree? I have a healthy fear of him. Now look with me at these couple of verses, 19 through 21 here in Matthew 6. We're just going to kind of make a little introduction here. He says, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Does that sound like a good place to invest? Then in verse 21, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be what? Also. So the real test, where's my heart? I could say I love Jesus all day long, but where, my, where I put my treasure, the most important thing in my life, if it's not him, that's where my heart's going to be. Make sense? Now the words in the text here, the words lay up or store up, depending on which version you're reading, and the word treasures. Those words come from the very same basic Greek root word, thesaurus, from which we get the English word thesaurus. And thesaurus is a treasury of words, is it not? How many of you ever used a thesaurus? I love mine. I, lo- I love my. I'm always thinking, give me a word. I need a word. I need a word. I love my thesaurus. A literal translation of that phrase in verse 19 would be, do not treasure up treasures for yourself. Let me say that again. Do not treasure up treasures for yourself. That has has immense consequence for us. It's naturally our human nature to treasure up treasures for ourselves. The picture is, and and we all see it, it's kind of a caricature of, of someone like Scrooge, who's hoarding, stacking up his gold coins, hardy har, or lining them up. And go. That's the picture. Don't, don't store it up for yourself. Don't hoard it for yourself. Now, it's important to, to remember that Jesus does not teach poverty as a means of spirituality he doesn't teach poverty as a means of spirituality some people sometimes can get the misconception misunderstanding okay somehow money is a bad thing and 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 if i become a christian i have to become a poor person no that's not at all there's only one person in all of the gospel record there's only one person that jesus said Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then you can follow me. Who remembers who that person is? He's the rich young ruler, right? Yeah. He doesn't tell everybody to do that. He doesn't make it a blanket rule. This is the thing that everybody, everybody, whenever that passage is taught on, and we'll get there in the next several years, But I promise you, people will come and say, should should I I sell everything? 
and give it to the poor? As if this is, what, this, is this, this is supposed to be the norm. No. There's only one person that Jesus said that to. Why did he say that to the rich young ruler? His money was his God. His money was his God. Picture this, if you will. He comes up to Jesus, right, and they have this conversation. And so Jesus tells him, okay, he says, if you want to follow me, then you've got to sell everything you have. Does Jesus know he's a rich guy? Sell everything you have, give it all to the poor, then you can come and follow me. Then you'll be able to follow me. So the rich guy's looking at Jesus. Now, do you think that Jesus is dressed in regal finery? Oh, he's got his everyday smock on. He's traveling. His feet are dirty. His sandals are probably worn. He looks at the other disciples. And, you know, they don't have the, the greatest clothes, I'm sure. And then he looks at himself. He's dressed in all of his fine garments. And he does this assessment. Hmm. 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 And we're told that he walked away sad. He didn't even say anything. He just walked away sad. He couldn't pull the trigger. Is there something in your life that you can't pull the trigger on? You can't surrender to him because he offers you life and you're just digging your heels in. Because it's your God. This was an opportunity for that young man to prove himself. There's an opportunity just laid right out there for him. He could never follow Jesus really unless he was free of that which he idolized, which is his money. The problem was not in the wealth itself, but in his unwillingness to part with it. The Lord does not require his disciples to give up all their money and possession to follow him, although certainly there are people who have voluntarily made that, made that call, made that choice to do so. But Jesus does require obedience to his commands no matter the cost. It's been said it costs nothing to come to him. It's free. Just come. But it costs everything to follow him. He says, if you're going to be my disciple, you must be willing to deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Whoa. It costs everything. It's costly to follow Jesus. And one day, every single one of us are going to stand before him. And we're going to give an account for our choices, our words. And did we really follow him? Does the Bible recognize a person's right to own stuff? Personal property? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, the foundational truth that underlies the commandments against stealing and against coveting is that right of personal property. Coveting and stealing are wrong because what is stolen or what is coveted belongs to another person. 
It's not that we can't own stuff. It's not that that's a bad thing. It's just that whatever we have, we want to make sure that it's not taking his place, usurping his place in our life. In Acts chapter 5, there's a great example. There's a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Some of you remember them. And the account is couched in the context of the early church coming together and thousands of people are getting saved. Thousands of people. And, and it just, God is doing great work. And people are, are loving on each other and they're meeting together and they can't get enough fellowship. And, and all of a sudden they're discovering needs. And so somebody who maybe has an asset or, 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 or some property or something sees the need and say, hey, I have, I'll sell this asset and then I'll, I'll, I'll bring the proceeds and lay it at the apostles' feet. And that's exactly what they did. And then the apostles distributed those resources to where the need was. So as a man by the name of Barnabas, who, little, just a little short verse, sold a piece of property, brought the proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet. Very giving. Right on the heels of the account of Barnabas now, there's the account of Ananias and Sapphira. They, too, wanted to be included. They, too, had a piece of property. They sold the property, and they brought part of the proceeds. Now, was it okay for them to bring part of the proceeds? Yeah, it was their property, their money. They could sell it. They could donate any part that they so choose, right? What was the problem there? They lied. They lied because what they said was that they brought the whole purchase price, the whole sale price of that property and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Ananias comes in and Peter confronts him. He says, what's, you, what, what's this thing you've done? He said, you've not lied to me. You've not lied to men. You've lied to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. And boom, Ananias falls over dead, has a heart attack. And Luke records, the whole church went, whoa. So they carry him out, bury him. Three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, comes in. Peter confronts her. Did you bring the whole amount that you said that you would? She says, oh, yeah. Not knowing, of course, her husband's already dead. He confronts her, she lies, confirms the lie, boom, she falls over dead too. Luke ends that section, the whole church was terrified. <laughs> Is that an object lesson? Of a number of things, really. But the reality is, here are two people who money really was their God. They wanted to do this good thing, and they wanted to look good. They wanted to do this religious act, help the needy. But they were hypocrites. Did the church need an object lesson, do you think? Absolutely. Well, how can you say that? Because it happened. God ordained that that would happen. The whole church took note. Whoa. Ananias and Sapphira. Tremendous object lesson. Does God expect his people to be generous? Yes. 
What do you think? Does he command his people to be generous? Yes, he does. How many are glad that he's generous? How many are glad that you can come to this communion table? Every time we come to this communion table, we can rejoice in the fact that my sin was great and his grace was greater. He doesn't condemn me. He's not mad at me. He's not wagging his finger at me. He says, come. Let my grace cover you. He says, be holy because I'm holy. Be like me. He's making us like him. And part of being like him is because he's generous, we should be generous. So not only does he expect us to be generous, he commands us to be generous. And similarly, he not only expects us, but he commands us to be thankful for all of his blessings, but also to enjoy them. He tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, that God gives us all these things for our enjoyment. God wants us to enjoy life. You don't become a Christian and go, okay, I guess, no more fun. I've had actually people say this. They say, can, can, can Christians have fun? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can have fun. You can enjoy life. He means for you to enjoy your life. He wants to bless you. Isn't that good news? But he says to the wealthy in that same verse, he says, tell those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant or not to put their hope in their wealth. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I've, I've known a fair share of very wealthy people. And there's always a percentage of those people who are arrogant and who do put their hope in their wealth. He says, command those people not to do that. In other words, he's saying the very same thing. Command them, instruct them, warn them to have a perspective on wealth so that it's not their idol anymore. The Bible has much to say about faithful work, doesn't it? The Bible has much to say about following good business principles and good financial principles in our life. Again, this is, this is the handbook. This is the manufacturer's handbook. You want to know how life works? You consult the handbook. Matthew chapter 25 is a parable of the talents, and that's a, always a great, great study. There are three servants, and the master entrusts a certain amount of resource with each of the servants. Five talents, two talents, one talent. And then he goes away on a long journey. And he expects them to uh, be faithful and invest those talents and, and have an increase when he gets back. So he does. And they, first two, uh, they say, Master, look, you gave me five, and I have ten, and you gave me two, and I have four. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Then the third servant, you recall, he said, you're a hard man, and I was afraid of you, and so I buried your talent. And the master said to him, you wicked, lazy servant. At the very least, you should have put my money in account with a banker so that I got some interest on it. Principles 
principles. In Proverbs chapter 6, this is a great passage. I often use this in in counseling uh, lazy people. I say to them, go to the ant, you sluggard. That word has a certain impact. It's much more powerful than you lazy guy. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways. Be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler, yet it stores its provisions, provisions in summer and gathers its food. In other words, check out the ant. It doesn't have to be told what to do. Go get a job. Be productive. Yeah, but you don't know. I, I can't work for... This mouth. You can start. You can start. You can get your foot in the door. Be faithful with a little bit. He'll trust you with more. My gosh. Proverbs 14. All hard work brings a profit. But mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 28, he who works his land will have abundant food, but the one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. The Bible talks about this stuff. God means for us to have a full, blessed life. It's right to provide for our families. It's right to make reasonable plans for the future. It's right to make wise investments. It's right to have money to carry on a business, to give some to the poor, and to support the work of the kingdom. It's right. But it's not right to be dishonest and greedy and covetous and stingy and miserly. That's not right. That's wrong. To honestly earn and save and to give is wise and good. To hoard and to spend only on ourselves not only is unwise, it is sinful. You see, the key to Jesus' warning here in this passage, the key is found in this one word, yourselves. Do not treasure up treasures for yourself. I tell people, make as much money as you can possibly make. Why? You have more to give away. You can really be a blessing. And there's nothing like being a blessing. I know people in our church who, who have money, lots of money, and I've watched them quietly hand it to people. No fanfare. Just reach in and... Not a buck, not a buck, too bad, substantial amounts of money. The more you have, the more you make, the more you can give away. The more you give away, the more you prove that you're a faithful steward, the more that God will give you. You never, ever have to worry about yourself. We would all do well to ask ourselves this question frequently. What's the most valuable thing in my life? What is the most valuable thing in my life? And then we should evaluate where we have spent our time 
If I say one thing is the most valuable thing in my life, then that's where I would spend my time. Would you agree? That's where I should be spending my energy, investing my life, pursuing where I spend my money. If I say the kingdom of God is the most important thing in our life, in my life, I should be fully invested. Would you agree? I'm fully invested. Trust me. Everything I do, everything I do, my whole life, because I believe. This is as real as it gets. A good accounting, whether of time, relationships, or money, is a good gauge of our values. Are we really living by kingdom values or are we living by worldly values? That's a question you have to answer for yourself. You can fool yourself. It wouldn't be wise. What's wise is really to do a serious evaluation. Would you agree? If we truly put Jesus at the center of our lives and serve him and love him with all that we are and all that we have, we will use appropriately all the blessings of life that God provides and we will find ourselves avoiding the modern idolatry of materialism. Beloved, Jesus is calling for undivided commitment. No divided loyalties. No part-time disciples. Amen? Lord, thank you. Again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for your spirit who lives in us. We thank you for this book called the Bible, which is the truth. Lord, many people decry it. Many people mock it. But they simply haven't read it. I pray for anyone here this morning who calls into question the Bible. Lord, I pray that you'd convict them to read it. Just simply to read it. And Lord, that you speak to their hearts. And turn their hearts towards you. Grant them repentance and save them.